The date is November 29th, and we have six programs offered sequentially on the Funnel Radio channel. Patrick Morrissey and Matt Singer kick off on Predictable Revenue Radio with the topic, Making Sales Enablement Work for 2,000 Salespeople. Marianne Vanilla welcomes Dan Sixsmith on Outstanding Outbound, tackling the issue, What Sales Leadership is in Most Denial About. Next, we have insights from leading SMB and CRM pundit Gene Marks on CRM Radio with host Paul Peterson. On Sales Pipeline Radio, Matt Hines guests Gillian Musig, CEO and co-founder of Outlines Venture Group. The topic is B2B Startup Sales Lessons, Mistakes, and Best Practices. Kyle O'Connor and John Asher on Asher Sales Sense talk about five factors creating elite sales mindsets. And from West Virginia University, WVU Marcom Today closes out with host Cindy Greenglass and her guest Larry Stultz talking about ideation techniques, concept development, and integrated marketing communications. Hey, we're introducing a new program this week right here in the Funnel Radio Network. Predictable Revenue Radio, hosted by Patrick Morrissey. Predictable Revenue Radio is brought to you by Altify, the Soils Transformation Company. Patrick's the Chief Marketing Officer at Altify, responsible for all aspects of marketing as well as channels and alliances. Prior to joining Altify, he was CRO of Simpler, and he has held multiple executive positions in sales and marketing at Salesforce, DataSift, Savion, and Business Objects. At Predictable Revenue Radio, we believe the only way to unlock sustained growth is to deliver predictable revenue by delivering insights, thought leadership, and best practices on how to improve your sales velocity. Predictable Revenue Radio will talk to the top B2B sales leaders, sales ops, enablement, and marketing execs to help you crack the code to high-performance selling. So with all that said, let's launch this new program right here on the Funnel Radio Network for at-work listeners like you. Welcome, Patrick. I'm Pat Morrissey. I'm your host, and I'm pleased to be welcomed Matt Singer. And Matt is actually an expert in the topic we're going to get into, which is talking about how do you enable salespeople in a time of massive transformations? And in this case, in the particular transformation we're talking about is the journey that CenturyLink is on as they're continuing to grow market and grow customers and trying to enable their sales team. So Matt is the Senior Director of Sales Enablement at CenturyLink. Matt, welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background and you know, kind of set the table of where you've come from that leads to the current conversation. Yeah, I have a varied history. I've worked in a lot of industries. I've been in telecommunications now for 11 years. I started at Level 3 Communications, and Level 3 went through numerous acquisitions by tenure. CenturyLink recently purchased Level 3. And I was uh, one of the leaders on the integration team for the sales organization. I run the sales enablement, sales effectiveness function for level three and now CenturyLink going on uh, four years, having led the integration of the sales organization um, for the two companies. Now I have about 18 months of 
integration, this company, and now going forward, looking at purely how do we continue and finish the integration and enable the sales organization, 2,000 person sales organization, be highly productive in, a, in an environment with really significant complexity. Complexity probably is putting it mildly, because if you're not an expert in telecom, you might not know the scope and scale of what we're talking about. But give a little context of what you were doing you know, before the integration to CenturyLink and, and that activity happened at level three. Yeah, I, I often say that our number one challenge is the fact that we are in an M&A situation about every two or three years. Oh, wow. Level three was buying a company roughly every two or three years. We never stop and optimize. We're in nonstop integration mode because transitioning products into an end state CPQ system or contract lifecycle or ordering, getting into getting all your data clean and in a Salesforce platform or whatever your CRM, CenturyLink shared that same common history also in a repeating cycle of acquisitions. So we find ourselves both bringing our complexity together, which I have referred to as we're just having compound complexity. We have sales organization now. It's a unified organization, so we have a, a single hierarchy, but we have salespeople still working in both legacy company streams. It takes many years to integrate into a single uh, operating platform process. Well, and you commented on you know, trying to, to make this work for 2,000 salespeople, and as one of the integration leaders, that means by definition you own the problem. But give us a little context for the scope and scale of CenturyLink, the business, because a lot of people aren't going to be familiar with really what you're dealing with here. CenturyLink is a global telecommunications provider. We're the number two enterprise telecommunication provider in North America as well as one of the largest carriers of internet traffic in the world. So we have a worldwide fiber optic network, and then we have metro network in many, many cities throughout the world. So we provide data, voice services, internet access, security services, unified communications. So we have a very broad portfolio of services that we offer to businesses. And with the combination of Level 3 and CenturyLink, we also have a consumer service as well, where we offer home, internet, and voice services to uh, consumers. So when you think about trying to bring two big companies together, and actually I heard you refer to it when we were talking in the run-up to the show, this is really compound transformation, because that whole telecom market is evolving very, very rapidly and consolidating very, very rapidly. And it sounds like you guys are on the front end of that. It's better to be the consolidator, consolidator than getting consolidated. But what does that mean in terms of what the sales leadership looks to you and looks to the team in terms of enabling sales. Sure. This this past transaction or integration process, I think, was really successful because we had such great sales leadership. So our our leadership team has to make just a never-ending uh, sequence of really a critical decisions about how are we going to operate as a company. And this is informed by many different aspects of our integration team, third-party consultants, etc., but for example, the landing point when you're going to launch a new sales organization is you have to have the work structure in place. So there's sure. countless organizational decisions to make. You have to have uh, your customer segmented properly and then a sales channel designed to serve those segments of your customer base. You have to design a compensation plan that rewards the type of action that you want. So if you're in a market capture mode or revenue retention mode or grow your base or uh, or grow um, 
you know, net new logos. You have to design your compensation plan with a, a sales component, a revenue component. So you've got complexity with your comp plan design, you name it. So there's, there's quite a bit of complexity there. So that leadership and decisive leadership, I think, is one of the most important elements of any solving for transformational complexity in the sales org is that decisive leadership is essential. And that's, that's what we've, I think, done uh, really well in our integration so when you think about this transformation, and to your point, being in telecom for a while, you've seen this film before. Where does this thing go sideways generally beyond the leadership piece? Say so you want good leadership and clarity of vision, but you go from one day trying to enable a team across a broad geography for one set of products and services, and suddenly you've got maybe an order of magnitude more variables to deal with, and you're on short time scales. When you think about having lived through multiple integrations and, and consolidations before, where are the scars? And I can relate this to both my uh, healthcare experience. I, I spent about six and a half years in healthcare prior to uh, my tenure at uh, level three. So this is really not industry specific, but what I've seen in past MNAs is when you bring in leadership that has one leader from one legacy company, one leader from the other legacy company and say, right, share responsibility and try to make these important decisions in a very timely manner. When you've got two people with 50-50 vote, it really, really slows things down. It's hard to get to the clarity and decisiveness that you need to move fast. The longer you prolong launching your new sales organization, you, you're just lengthening the lack of productivity because they... The fear and uncertainty is the biggest enemy to a productive salesperson. They don't want to invest in accounts they're not sure they're going to keep. Totally. And and so that that one element of having leaders try to co-decide when they're both bringing a lot of their history and what their you know paradigm is that's a, a real uh, difficulty in an integration. Well, I got to believe that raises a whole list of issues around the customer side of this equation too, from what do I have to who do I work with, with joint customers, or how do you even think about putting a plan together to map out territories? What's good look like in that? Or what are the considerations to start to think about when you're putting a box around bringing two large organizations together and then aligning salespeople to go execute? So one of the like guiding principles that we had was to limit the amount of disruption for assignment of account rep to a customer. That's the number one way to disrupt your relationship with the customer during an M&A activity is to change their account rep. Now, in our case, we had numerous accounts that had two reps assigned to them. So you still have to make some decisions around sure. who's going to be retained. But I'll kind of circle back to your segmentation of your customer base is the first critical part. So in our case, in CenturyLink, hundreds of thousands of accounts, sensibly segmenting your customer base and then designing a sales channel to serve that customer base. What kind of customer experience you want? How are you going to go to market? You know, what are your what's your sales coverage going to be? How many accounts you're going to sign per rep? All of those considerations are essential to having a good strategy for serving each segment of the customer base. Again, we use a third party to help like get through all the data, crunch the data, what's the overlap, what's the what's the resulting sales channel yep. size going to be, what's the total dollar value existing, what's the opportunity, and then you just start to do the math to split it up and then you, it kind of spits out a here's the size of my customer my sales organization that I need to have with a reasonable average number of accounts per rep, things like that. There's a lot of data crunching to get there, but that's a, a super essential part because 
to get a salesperson productive, you've got to know who you're reporting to, what customers are you selling to, mm-hmm. what are you selling, and how do you get paid? Mm-hmm. Getting them that clarity, and they're off and running. And certainly that third bucket of what are you selling, and particularly when you're trying to bring two product portfolios together, is not an insubstantial challenge. And you talk about ongoing integration. How do you how do you fight through and prioritize that? And what's required from a sales enablement perspective to actually make it stick with the sales teams? We considered change management to be an essential part of helping the sales organization get through a transition. And again, we experienced this in prior industries. It's it's not necessarily telecom specific. And what I mean by change management is a great communication plan. Salespeople, especially during times of dramatic change, they'll engage more than ever. They want to participate in these all-hands calls, these broadcast communications to share what's going on. So we did that up frequently, mm-hmm. and we made sure to have our figureheads participate in those calls. Then creating a intranet site for the common integration-related news and artifacts and documents. So when they need to get to what's the new policy, what's the new comp plan, what's the new whatever it is, we architected the intranet site to make sure we share that content. And then we quickly stood up a change management board, allowed a stakeholder group to weigh in. So when proposed changes were coming about, we'd have a, a, a broad stakeholder group who could comment and then we could discuss what's the appropriate way to communicate out those changes. And when you say stakeholder group, are you is that cross-functional or you're taking reps from different geographies to have a seat at the table or or what's the mix of who makes some of those calls? Because you there's a balance between everyone's got an opinion versus you've got a short time scale to try to bring two organizations together. Yeah. I jokingly say there are those who have an opinion and those who have a vote. And our stakeholder board really is consists of sales ops, offer management, legal, perhaps operations, project management, our delivery functions. Since we have so many channels, we may have representatives from each channel weigh in. So it's, it's a pretty good broad group. And we kind of say, you got to show up to cast your vote. So participation is great in that change review board. Well, that also suggests too, if you don't show up, you don't get a vote. It's exactly right. So the train keeps moving. Last time I checked, you guys are... Uh, a publicly traded entity with uh, shareholders and expectations. Absolutely. What does that mean then when you bring it down to the the street level or the rep level? Because behind all that, there are process definitions, there are tool sets, there are a whole bunch of people in in direct and, and related functions that are trying to support the team. I mean, sales enablement is a big, wide thing, and you don't own all those people. How do you start to rationalize the other pieces of this puzzle to, again, get to the four big buckets of clarity that are going to drive the right kind of salesperson behavior? Great question. I didn't mention training in my change management, but I should have. Training is an obvious, essential element to helping educate people into there are new products to sell, there's a new set of tools from which to yeah, to sell those products and quote and price, et cetera. There's a new selling process methodology. So we were up front and we confronted the differences between the two legacy company ways of doing business. Mm-hmm. We enabled a, a thorough, thoughtful training program, knowing that there's only so much a rep can consume. So you have to be very calculated in how much you're going to expose them to. And then the types of training, system-based training, for example, learning a new CPQ system, it's a really difficult 
thing to do remotely with a large audience. Right. The, the engagement level, it's just human nature. It's hard to engage. System-based training is a tough one. We have these labs, quoting labs, where we bring people in. They are opt-in, so it's, it's not prescribed training. But the lab is a working session to get people hands-on and to, to use the system. So sitting there, having to listen to a point-and-click demonstration mm-hmm. isn't remotely close as effective as a lab where you're actually going to do while an instructor talks a large group or a, a modest-sized group through the process. Well, and is it are they talking them through the process in Tell me how this works in real life. Because there's one thing about I need to know what the CPQ system is going to be regardless of where I come from and and the legacy company that I was in. There's another thing when I've got active deals on the table, right? Because business doesn't stop and people still have quotas to meet and expectations to meet and customers to satisfy. How do you bring that piece of the puzzle together? Or do you do those groups in real time around real opportunities? And Also a great question. What we stood up, which I would consider another best practice, is we have a, we call it the sales success center. It's an internal support desk that is on demand, available via chat, a ticket, or a phone call. We expand the group for a purpose of an integration because we know we're going to be introducing a dramatically uh, larger amount of change. So that live deal support is critical. So if they simply run into a how-to question or mm-hmm. a technical issue, or they need somebody to just walk them through, how do I do it this? Why do I do it this way? That sales success center is uh, is the group that does that. So I staff that from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time. I've got you know a group uh, on a shift that six hours at a time, there's only so much you can sure. answer questions from grumpy salespeople. But it's an extremely successful function that helps bridge the gap until reps become proficient in the go forward way of doing business. Yeah. And when you get them to the go forward, uh, particularly when you're talking about global footprint and strategic accounts, then what is, what does good look like? Or what are the kind of behaviors that you're looking for from an sales enablement perspective to say, Hey, yeah, they're getting it. We're making progress. Well, we Cause certainly there's revenue, right? You either made the number, you didn't make the number, you closed the deal, but it's, that's not the only element here. And we, of course, look at the traditional measures of success, like quota attainment and, and win rates and yield or the percentage of reps who make a quota. I look at the data frequently on how many tickets, chats, calls are coming into the Sales Success Center. Mm-hmm. What are the top issues that we're seeing as trends? And then we, you know, we're in a, a ticket prevention mode. We don't want them to have to call. Right. So we're, we engage our training organization. We engage IT. We'll engage whoever the fix agent is for their respective top reasons. And so sometimes it's just we did a new product release, and now we have a lot of questions because it's a natural adoption rate of a new product. But by looking at the data and looking at the reports, we have like the, the fastest pulse on what the challenges of the, the challenges du jour are for our sales organization. So when you think about the go forward, then, so you've gotten through phase one of the integration, but back to where you started, this sounds like in, in telecom or certainly in CenturyLink today, there's, and it's an ongoing series of integrations and things that you're trying to rationalize from acquisitions on both sides of the house. So when you look over the time horizon for the next couple of years, what's top of mind for you and what would be top of mind for other people you know, who might be in a similar situation where they're trying to bring you know, two companies together in an M&A situation? Simplicity and sales productivity are the like resounding themes. So 
how can we make a seller's job easier, whether it be their interaction with the customer, what are some of their challenges with maybe learning the new products and the pitch, or is it the content that enables the pitch? Is it too much pricing, bureaucracy, whatever it may be? So we're very sensitive to those productivity drains that, that affect the seller. We want to get to quickly an end state of here are the products you should sell. Here's what's going to make you most successful. Here's what the market wants. We have a huge investment in our systems and our process optimization. Mm-hmm. So being really in tune with what the challenges are and enabling them to, to be as productive as possible. That's just kind of the drumbeat that we live by. It's a different set of problems depending on where you are and what the type of transformation you're going through. Mm-hmm. So it's there's not one prescription of just do this. You yeah. know, in our case, we have you know a multi-year effort to collapse into one CPQ system and one CLM system and you know uh, simplify the process. So it's going to be inefficient for a while, but that's the nature of telecom. We all experience this type of. Uh, inefficiency because of the nature of consolidation going on in our market. Yeah, it doesn't sound like that's going to slow down anytime soon. So no sense holding your breath and wishing it gets better, right? Yeah. So if you, if you step back and think about you know this and, and other of these cycles that you've lived through, and you talked about the importance of sales leadership, what are the other you know two or three things that would be top of mind that people from a, a sales leadership or a sales enablement leadership like you are thinking about or should be thinking about and, and coming back to as the core checklist to, to get through a tough time and a short cycle and really arm the team to succeed. When you think about how do we how do we make a sales organization operate better, it's easy to jump to technology being the solution. Right. But you've gotta think about wait, wait, people. we're at Dreamforce this week. Are you telling me technology <laughs> and, and some of the cloud is not the solution? <laughs> it's part of the solution. Okay. Fair enough. People and and the process and then your systems or your technology. I mean, I, I own a big portfolio of tools, so believe me, I'm an advocate for the right tools for the job, and, and automation and simplicity can certainly come from that. But how you hire, how you train, how you reward and incent, and how you manage your people, that is the foundation. You gotta do that right. You gotta have a sensible process. You gotta have a process that helps them be successful in selling what you believe the marketplace needs the most process is essential. You cannot have great technology that overcomes a process. It just is incomprehensible and tough to follow. Yep. And then frosting is a technology, you know, technology can create consistency it can and automate steps. It can help make the customer experience better, but none of the technology matters. If you don't hire, right, you don't train to some degree of proficiency. You don't have capable reps technology, unless you're a pure online marketplace, I mean, you got to have the people. 100%. And that's a, probably a great place to wrap up this conversation. When you think about your career, who who would you point to as you know the best the best sales leader and or the best you know sales enablement leader you've ever worked for and why? And what did you learn? Yeah. Now, I'm on my second um, time reporting to my current boss. I, mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to say names or not, but... Up to um, you. Yeah. Well, I'll just say my current boss, um, and it's a woman, and you know, she's. I have two daughters, and uh, she's a great role model for a successful woman in a technology company. I admire her for that. I admire her for what a great champion she is for 
important causes. Sales enablement isn't inherently at the desk. You know, I'm not at the table of the CEO with the strong voice as other functions like IT. IT always the CMO. You've got all these other functions that have earned a spot at the CEO's table. Sure. Sales enablement isn't quite there. So you have to have a champion that can really advocate for you. And she does that extremely well. She's also a great sales leader. It, it's tough to find the balance between being really good at uh, leading a large set of sales channels as well as leading sales enablement for the benefit of the whole company. And so uh, she's a great champion in that respect as well. Fantastic. And it sounds like you just set the the bar for what the future of sales enablement looks like, which is a seat at the CEO's table. Absolutely. And I, I just heard a phrase yesterday chief productivity officer. So that's my personal goal. I want to be the CPO. Fantastic. That we look forward to uh, watching your meteoric rise to the CPO position. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great Dreamforce and uh, happy selling. Thank you. You've been listening to a new show here on the Funnel Radio Network called Predictable Revenue Radio. It's a bi-weekly program. Brought to you by the good folks at Altify. Welcome back once again to SLMA Radio and this week's program, Outstanding Outbound, a monthly show with our host, Marianne Vanilla Hosting. Marianne, as you know, has been a frequent guest here in the past on the SLMA, and her new program will explore the growing field of outbound lead generation for large deals, maybe like yours. Program's brought to you by the Vanilla Group. Without any further ado, let's welcome... Marianne Vanilla. Hey, Marianne. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Outstanding outbound. Boy, I, I, uh, I, I smile every time I say that because is there such a thing as outstanding outbound where uh, so much of the outbound is just garbage, it seems like? Yeah. You know, it's really funny because I actually put this tagline in one of my profiles uh, just today. I said, it's not that people don't take calls. They just don't take bad calls. Yes, exactly. And, and there's a lot of bad calls out a there. A lot and, of them. Yeah, really bad. And, you know, I think a lot of times organizations think that, you know, putting junior people on the front lines to cut their teeth on before they can get into, you know, more uh, account, large account management, and things like that. But really what they do is those are often the people that are first talking with new prospects and it just makes the thing crash on the very first interaction they have with it them. really does and I, I know you've got a guest waiting here but i just got to bring up one one uh, p pet peeve of mine they're all following this standard script when they when they when you answer the phone and so you weren't right. expecting a sales call and all of a sudden they say hi mr roberts how are you right. like that's supposed to engage me immediately and all it does is immediately tell me it's a sales call i didn't ask for and i'm annoyed Right. 
And even calling you Mr. Roberts, it's like, okay, why don't you put your teacher on the phone? <laughs> yes, exactly, right. You know, a lot of times the reps that are inexperienced, you know, they, they kind of make this immediate class distinction by talking up to their prospect. So it creates this lack of respect that you can't even have a peer-to-peer discussion when you do that. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing more about can there be such a thing as outstanding outbound? Because it seems like we're just getting worse and worse. It's getting more robotic and and less... I'm less and less likely to even want to yeah. engage with them after the first second. After, as soon as I find out what that it is, I, I'm annoyed and I want to quit. Right, yeah. So, yeah, like talk like a normal person. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, today uh, my guest is Dan Sixsmith, and he, is, he owns a consulting firm, um, Sales is King Performance Consulting, and he's also CMO at Augmento Agency. So he's a, a well-known consultant, speaker, trainer, coach. He's a very active blogger. He serves on C, uh, as a CMO on a board of a nonprofit organization. They um, work with protecting teens from substance abuse, and, and he talks a lot about that personally, you know, to help out kids. And so today, what we're going to talk about is what sales leadership is in denial about. So I want to welcome Dan. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really, uh, really exciting to have you. Um, I know you and I have talked a lot about, you know, different stuff that is just really broken on enterprise sales teams in that B2B space. And, you know, you and I were talking about the show and the areas that we're going to get into are things that are so often overlooked, but really need to be looked at to stop losing deals for ridiculous reasons. And, and a lot of this stuff just persists. And it's so hard to get everyone to slow down and just re-engineer some of their workflow and some of their management processes. And, you know, I, I see this happen over and over and companies add more tools and more reps and more data platforms, but the same stuff is happening behind the curtain. So what do you think are the three biggest areas that sales leadership is missing the mark on? Yeah, you know, um, you're absolutely right. And just kind of piggybacking on what you guys said at the beginning, only 17% of reps actually get a second meeting. So that just goes to show, you know, how bad the performances are. But, you know, it does come back to the sales leadership. And I think there's three key areas where they're missing. First and foremost, they're hiring the wrong people. Um, There was a stat from um, the objective management group that said leaders are hiring sales, the wrong salespeople, 77% of the time. So they really need to kind of focus on what skills they really are looking for when they hire salespeople so they can get the hire right. So that's step one. They're hiring the wrong people. Step two, once they hire them, I think they're doing a poor job of training and coaching them and holding them accountable. So, you know, I think they kind of just throw them out there and hope they know what they're doing and they don't give them effective training. And then from there, they don't really coach them on an ongoing basis. And then I think number three would be, you know, are the sales leaders holding themselves accountable? You know, it's very easy to dump on the salespeople and say, hey, the quota numbers have been going down and this this rep blew this deal. But ultimately, you know, it, it, they have to answer for this. So how do yeah. they hold themselves more accountable? How can they become better leaders, better managers, better coaches? Right. 
Yeah, and to your your the second point of training, yeah, I know a lot of times when uh, reps are onboarded, you know, they they get some product training, they get all their you know sales enablement stuff and all their pitch decks and maybe some battle cards and stuff like that. But as far as how to engage with people like on a personal level and how to interpret their behavior and how to um, be able to read the conversation. Like I do a lot of work around that remote relationship management and how do you manage these relationships that you're mainly having uh, interactions with over the phone or on email or web calls or video calls or whatever. How do you convert that to how do you convert what you were doing in person, which was more, you know, you take them out for dinner, or, you know, you've, you've got something that is more substantial, like, oh, let's go play golf, let's go do this, whatever. And how do you create the value of that in remote touch? And so that, that's something that prospects just don't know. And I think that a lot of times they might know the product, they might know the tools that they have available, but they don't really understand the psychology of their buyers in a way that they can kind of read between the lines and know how to get in there a little more surgically. And, you know, it's interesting. So how, how is this happening? I want to ask you this. How, how is this happening at a time where transparency is so easy? Like we can see, you know, what's going on in CRMs. We can see who's hitting our sites real time. There's so much visibility. So why do you think this is still happening? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really a major shift going on in sales. And, and I make the contention that B2B sellers are being disrupted. The sales process is really being disrupted. And those who are not making the change are going to fall by the wayside, you know, like the companies that haven't, like the blockbusters and the Sears, Robux, um, right. sports authorities, right? So there's all this information about how buyers want to engage today, and it's different than it was years ago. So the, the new modern seller needs to know how to do the homework, how to do the research, um, and then engage and ask thoughtful questions, you know, intelligent questions that are going to get the prospect to open up and, and then, you know, try and make a connection between how they can help their solution connected to the prospect issue or challenge. And that's not easy to do for sellers today because the old school is, hey, we go in, we throw up a PowerPoint, we talk about our solution, we go through the features and benefits, and then we just pray that something sticks or that something resonates. So there's really a sea change in how to sell effectively today. And if the sales leaders can't teach the sales reps how to do this, then it's all going to fall on deaf ears. And I think that's why the numbers are so bad today. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the thing is, a lot of these outcomes that happen on the front lines, I I find that they're not really examined with a view of what needs to change. It's kind of more of a, well, what's a post-mortem on this? Um, Okay, let's move on. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I I, I do. I I think a lot of the leaders are, uh, the sales leaders have come up with kind of uh, pipeline management there's not a lot of uh, riding along. You know, there's not a lot of breaking down the calls, um, yeah. analyzing where things may have gone wrong. Um, and it's everything's happening so quickly that everyone's just running to the next meeting, you know. Right. And then hoping yeah. that at the end of the year, we say, oh, well, we had a good year. I hope, you know, what happened? <laughs> you yeah. Know? So. Yeah, I know. And some of this stuff is so basic, like 
how you follow up and engagement practices, the words you use, how to construct an email. I mean, it's really basic stuff that can make a prospect go quiet. You know, like one of my peeves, and I wrote in a, um, I wrote in my uh, uh, LinkedIn, I wrote a LinkedIn article about sending your calendar invite, your calendar in cold emails and other slop and B2B sales. And, you know, I, I think that sending a calendar link for prospects to do the work to get a meeting on a rep's calendar, I mean, it just sets a weird dynamic. And, you know, a lot of prospects aren't going to respond to that. I don't respond to that. It's like, you want to sell me your stuff, you do the work to make the meeting happen. It's like, I'm not going to adjust to when you're available. So, you know, me personally, they, they got to do the work. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I, I've seen that. And and what it says is, is that, like, hey, I'm more important than you. You know, uh, right. you do the work. You book the meeting. You come find me. Uh, what should I do next? Write my own proposal and then send you a check. You know, yeah. so, yeah. Um, you know, it, I, I tell, you know, our folks to always add value uh, in every interaction. Add value. Don't be a pest. Send a, a piece of interesting content. As follow-up, you know, to see where right. people are in the process. Just differentiate yourself. It's so easy to do because there's so much bad activity going on out there. You know, yeah, just come yeah. across intelligent, thoughtful, and, and I think you're going to do, do a lot better than most. Yeah, and, you know, the, the thing is, you know, when you're, when you make that shift, so when you do, and I, to your point, everything's moving so fast that it it is a stretch sometimes to do the extra work to stop, look back, what happened. But if you do that, if you just take the time to roll up your sleeves and find out what's happening, then you really get it. That's where you get the insight that you need because then you can see where stuff falls apart because it's not just, you know, and I, I, I have a, an illustration about follow-up that, well, let me ask you this first. I'll, I'll give you that example because it's really funny on some of the follow-ups that I get. But why, why do you think that organizations are resistant to look at that? You know, I think that, uh, first of all, a lot of the sales leadership, um, you know, they, they rise through the ranks uh, and they're really good at selling. And then they start to take over teams and they're not particularly good at uh, leading, managing, coaching, uh, analyzing uh, all of the key skills that are required today um, to be able to understand what's going on in your business and then in turn, you know, train your team to do that. So I think uh, the quality of sales leadership needs to be better. And I think the leaders need to be trained. The CEOs yeah. and, and the higher ups need to provide training for, you know, effective sales management as a modern digital era manager. Right. What are who are some people that you know that are doing it right? Like, what are some success stories? Yeah. So I, I you know, I've uh, come across a few companies over the last couple of years. Hey, Dan. Um, for, we're gonna break. Yeah. We're gonna break for a commercial in a second. Yeah. I'm gonna ask you that question when you come back because I really want to talk about that because I know we're kind of you know, ripping on what everybody's doing that's wrong. But <laughs> there's actually a lot of organizations that are doing it right. And when you experience that, it really makes a difference. So uh, I'm going to hand it back over to Paul, and we're going to go to commercial break, and I'll be right back. And just to take a breather here and uh, remind you that the Vanilla Group 
is committed to give back to our customers more than just great leads. That's it. Their objective is to deliver a customized strategic sales development solution that's sustainable. Isn't that the key? It's got to be something you can do over and over again. The Vanilla Group solution is designed to invigorate your entire sales organization by providing your sales team with new revenue opportunities and a continuous stream of ongoing selling activities. Continuous, sustainable. Achieving this mission requires a partnership. And as your trusted partner, the Vanilla Group understands your objectives and tries to meet your requirements. For more information on what seems like a simple and obvious but very powerful premise, premise uh, you can visit the website at the Vanilla Group. Dot com v a n e l l a group dot com vanilla group dot com. Every time I read that, I say that's so obvious, but so few people do that. We're, we're nobody's doing anything sustainable, continuous. Isn't that what we're trying to achieve here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is you know turnover, and I mean, we've had clients anywhere from four to ten years. And that's because it's predictable. So that's really key. We last a lot longer than their FTEs do. And and, um, and what I and I, I'm sure you'll talk more about this and maybe a little bit today. You should talk about the positive things. You, you were bashing yeah, on everybody the first half right here. Yeah. But but I think that one of the things that's missing is is the ability that we all think that we have to simplify it and dumb it down. Like we were talking about scripts at the beginning. Or hi, Mr. Roberts, how are you? Everybody's got to follow this simple pattern. And and I'm not sure that that's really what works. I think if you dumb it down enough, you 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 kill the golden goose here. You stop the continuous right. growth here. Right. Well, what you really need to do is not dumb it down, but you need to step it up. I mean, ah. you got to have people that can have uh, really sharp critical thinking skills on the front lines. You got to have people that understand how to map what's going on in these accounts to actionable items and how to map that so that they can pivot their discussions and get the information that they need to be able to progress the deal. So I think a lot of people are kind of in this pushing information. Yeah, right. Really what you need to do is pull information. And so, Dan, I just asked you, um, who's doing it right? And so why don't you name a few examples? Yeah, sure. So, you know, to be fair to some of the sales leaders, they are running around putting out fires, right? So organizations are layering in these sales enablement functions, uh, groups that are coming in to work with the sales leaders, to work with the sales team, to train and coach. So over the last couple of years, um, I've I've worked with a few different companies. First Union is doing a great job, Chris Kingman and his team. uh, They put in very elaborate training and coaching um, and education um, that is repeated. You know, the whole thing about this is consistency, right? Companies right. will bring in trainers, right, and they do this fabulous training, and then everybody runs off into the sunset, and seven days later, they've forgotten it all. So right. they have these um, consistent coaching programs where the reps are constantly being evaluated. Um, people are listening into their calls because a lot of their business is done on the phone. So they're reviewing the calls. They're breaking down the calls. They're trying to help them and talk to them about where they can improve, what they need to do better, or where they, you know, where they've been going well. Ring Central is another one. Uh, Siobhan Thatcher and her group—they're in the unified communication space and B two B. They've put together a similar program. Uh, Pega Systems as well. So, you know, you really have to invest in the people 
um, in the training, in the coaching, and make it an ongoing and consistent process. And then you start to see it become kind of a culture, right? So there's a culture of learning, a culture of coaching, a culture of sharing best practices. That's how people get better. You know, right. so um, those are a few examples that I think people are, are doing a great job. Yeah, no, that's great. And and it, like I said, there's a ton of people that are doing it right. And I think some of that is, you know, they look at the sales operations function. So whether they have somebody in that role or not, sales operations is a function. So you have to get in there and look at, okay, what steps are happen, happening here? You know, Gary Gross is a, a operations guru that I know, and he's got a really, really tight infrastructure that he overlays on onto organizations he works with. And I mean, they, there's nothing falling through the cracks there. So it really makes a difference because you can see that there's not all these blind spots that are going on. And you're right. A lot of it is just being busy. Um, they are, you know, quotas are, uh, you know, growing. And one of the things I mentioned, we were just featured in Silicon Valley Review. And one of the things, or Silicon Review, sorry, uh, one of the things that I mentioned is that the vendor space is more crowded. Therefore, there's more teams, there's more outreach. So there's a lot of noise out there. So, you know, the, the, the pressure on reps is huge, but there are things happening which are totally unnecessary. So, you know, like, for example, I had one, um, it was an enterprise big company. All of you know who it is. I won't say it. And <laughs> that we needed to buy something from them. And I inquired and we bought their platform. But they had SDRs following up on that initial lead months after we already bought the platform. So talk about broken. Obviously, their CRM isn't integrated with their uh automation with their forms with all this other stuff maybe they're using a third party to do that i don't know but you know that's that's a a really big deal so broken process is something that that's when you go and you audit your trail of the customer journey that's where you can find that stuff yeah so if you were going to give sales leaders three things that they can look at before the end of the year that's going to really help supercharge their 2019. What are what are those three things? Yeah, so they really need to uh, go back and analyze the year, right, and see what, what was good and what was bad. But, you know, number one, they have to decide, you know, what skills they're looking for uh, in their sales reps going forward, and then hire the right people. Hire the people that fit that description. There was an article in Fast Company recently that asked the question, is sales moving to become more of a STEM job, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. It is, you know, it it is starting to move that way. So the old school, hey, this guy's a great guy, let me hire him, or a great gal, or, you know, the word experience to me doesn't mean much anymore. Expertise is much more important. I've got 30 years experience in selling. But the way I sold in 1989, if I sold today, I, I, I wouldn't be doing very well. So right. look for people with expertise, number one. Um, number two, um, we've got to train and coach better. We've got to learn how to train and coach. How can I make my team the best possible team that they can be? You know. And then number three is going to be I, as a sales leader, I've got to hold myself accountable. And guess what? If my company is not giving me training, um, or education. I've got to get that on my own. 
I've got to go yeah. out and hire a mentor. I've got to go read a book. I've got to go uh, listen to podcasts. I've got to watch videos. I have to improve in these areas. Um, you know, I've got to go do that on my own. And I've got, to, yeah. I've got to take full responsibility for what went right and also what went wrong. Yeah. Yeah, That's those are great points because I know, I and I see this a lot with sales reps. Like when I interview people uh, to add to our team, I'll ask, you know, what are some of the business books that you've read recently? And a lot of them haven't read anything, or a lot of them don't have anybody that has mm-hmm. really stood out to them in the space. And that tells me a little bit about them. And I know it, just the, the whole idea of listening and uh, you know having those types of skills and being able to solve problems. And how did you solve a problem like this? How did you address a customer like that? When did you go above and beyond what was really the the scope of your role to be able to help a client when they were having a problem. You know, those types of things are meaningful because that'll tell you how much they're going to personally invest in themselves to get better. Because just like you were saying, if you were selling like you were, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, it's like it it's not the same today. You have to understand the digital landscape and you have to understand that information is out there that you don't have to, you can find out on your own. You don't have to chew up time with your prospect discovering things that you can find out on your own. So that's really, really important. So Dan, how can people follow you and engage with you? Sure, sure. So um, I've got a podcast called Sales is King, which is um, available on all the major platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, um, Anchor.fm. I've been doing that for about a year and a half. We've got 71 episodes, and we go through a lot of these issues. Sometimes we interview players from the field. Other times we're just kind of breaking down some of the latest trends. And a lot of these issues that we're wrestling with today, um, you could shoot me a note at dan.sixsmith at Gmail, and I'm on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter at Digital Advantage. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on today. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. I will hand it back over to Paul. You've been listening to another episode of Outstanding Outbound with host Marianne Vanilla. Brought to you by the Vanilla Group and Funnel Radio Channel for at-work listeners like you. Welcome back to another episode of CRM Radio. Today, the only live show that takes a look at the whole ever-changing CRM space. With the voice of CRM. The voice we look forward to each and every other week here on the show. Paul Peterson from Goldmine. Hey, Paul. Paul Roberts, hi. Hi. The voice, if not the face. <laughs> That's right. The voice of CRM. We should have an echo effect there or something like, you know. 
Well, as a producer, you you can control the tape speed, variable tape speed. You can uh, voice so, backwards, yeah. uh, all that. You could you could be the George Martin of the CRM. I think so. Any more updates on you? Have such an ongoing encyclopedic knowledge of the Beatles and George Martin. I, I bow to your uh, your knowledge here, and Sir George Martin, the man I, who who had yeah. to do a lot more with a lot less. Yeah, he. Uh, from a technology perspective. So the interesting thing is they released the, it's hard to say this, uh, a 50-year version of the Beatles album known as the White Album. Wow. But on the deluxe set, and I like to buy anything that says deluxe. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> uh, yeah, great marketing. But there, you know, there was a lot of talk about the Beatles' White Album being the Beatles in disarray and so forth. But when they came back from India, they spent a day or two at George Harrison's house, recorded over 24 acoustic demos, which then became the album. And I this is interesting. I was not aware that that event happened in one day. Hmm. It says they were a cohesive group. They got together. Yeah, right. And so, forth. so I'm very anxious to uh, put that on. I got to go find a CD player now to hook all that up. But in any event, it's called yeah. the Esser tapes for those of you who, uh, who care. And it was they self produced the demos. Well, someday, I think 50 years in the future, people will be listening to these conversations and being amazed at, at uh, what we did today here on CRM Radio. Well, let's let's see. So in that regard, let's do something, and let's talk to Gene Marks. Hi, Gene. Hey, Paul. You know, while we're talking Beatles, I just have to say, you know, on the Abbey Road album, you know, the second side, where they have the whole, you know, mix from, you know, Here Comes the Sun all the way through, you know, the end, the, the fact is a lot of those songs were incomplete songs. They were yes. just sort of you know, half-done songs that George Martin um, kind of put together into this masterpiece, this sort of collage of a continuous, you know, music that went all the way through, which created the second side of Abbey Road, which is one of my favorite yeah. albums of all time. Well, so, absolutely. And I, and I just read that there, too, that, yes, it, it's true, they had these bits that uh, yeah. often they would build out. And they consciously decided, no, we're not going to build them out. We're going to turn this into, this was that rock opera phase. They were going to try to turn right. this into one side of music with you know, chord changes and beat change, you know, and, and, and just go, go nuts. And then, of course, at the end of that, do you know, uh, there are two unique things that happen at the end of, uh, I think it's the end of side one of Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight. But uh, do you know the two things that are unique on that side? No, go ahead. I'm waiting. All right, and I, I, I happened to walk onto a, a plane, a United Airlines jet, and the pilot was playing Abbey Road in the cockpit, and I said, do you realize <laughs> that this is the only record where Ringo had a drum solo? He, he always really? uh, eschewed playing any, you know, focus on him. He was always the beat, the timekeeper, and so forth. So that is the only drum mm -hmm. solo that Ringo ever recorded. And there is, uh, in that song, there is this just slashing guitar section it's the only yeah, time it all three played lead guitar. Carry that weight. Uh, I forget which one that was. Yeah, but yeah, yeah go ahead. Carry the, carry the weight. The end. You know, and, and golden slumbers. So it's, I believe it's the end when they right. when they really rip into it. But anyway, a, a great great album. And um, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad. Oh my gosh, we're almost out of time. So let's all head to the store and get and get our Beatles no, album. And I'm waiting probably... for the remastered versions. What is interesting, Paul, is that when you listen to the tapes. Uh, of of the Beatles of what they recorded way back, there was still detail to be revealed that did not come across yeah. in the vinyl pressings, that did not come across in the initial CDs, but that are now being revealed both in 
digital mastering of, of a CD, but a friend of mine who's a big uh, you know uh, vinyl. So even though the technology was old, it captured more than we could hear for low these many 50 years. Fascinating. It is fascinating. It's great there to go. hear your love for the Beatles. I do. Um, so, uh, well, let's shift with that and our the things that pay the bills for us, uh, CRM. So Gene and I go um, go back quite a ways, and uh, we were both uh, came out of a, what at the time was Big 8. And uh, uh, eventually, Gene, you went on to be a, a, a consultant for businesses getting into networking early and have been a goldmine uh, consult uh, just and, and thus CRM for over 20 years. You and I sat on the advisory council. So, uh, but but you've also become a publisher. So tell us what's going on a little bit about how that, all that evolved for you. Well, I um, yeah, Paul, when you knew me back many many years ago, um, I had left KPMG and I had started up um, a company with my father that at the time was selling uh, my father's uh, accounting software, which he developed, which was uh, the world's worst accounting software. It was, uh, you know, underdeveloped, underfunded, and um, was a, uh, he, he, was, he was launching around the time when QuickBooks was being launched. This was like back in the late 80s, you know, early 90s. It was not a good thing. And then, of course, I made the great decision to leave my good-paying job and join up with him, uh, one of the many uh, questionable decisions I've made in my life. Uh, but anyway, you know what we did? We, we actually used Goldmine. This is way back when the, in the DOS version to sort of fill in the holes for what my dad's accounting software did not do. Uh, we were actually using it for inventory and orders, and you don't even want to know. It was whatever. But it was, it was doing the job of software back in the 80s for small business. And then um, and into the 90s, and then this wonderful thing happened. The year 2000 came along, and although planes did not drop from the sky and the world did not end, my father's software stopped working. He, he was actually the one software program in the world that really <laughs> – Right, really fell victim to the year 2000. That's how bad his software was. And it forced us to do what I've been wanting to do for so long, which is just to focus on Goldmine. So I, you know, we, we focused on Goldmine for a number of years. And since then, we take, we've taken on other applications as well, both accounting and some CRM applications. And then about 10 or so years ago, as a therapeutic exercise, I started writing about my life as a business owner. We have 10 people in my company and about 600 active clients and, you know, just to kind of get it out there. And I started writing about it uh, locally for the Philadelphia Business Journal uh, where I live. And then it just started expanding. So since then, um, I've published six books on small business management. Um, I will have a new one coming out next year about navigating through the next recession. Um, and I'm writing um, – you know, I, you know I, I wrote daily for the New York Times and then daily for the Washington Post, and now I'm writing weekly for The Guardian and the Philadelphia Inquirer and Forbes and Entrepreneur and Inc., all on business management issues and technology issues. Forbes, every other week, I write a column on CRM um, as well as other technology stuff, and um, a lot of that has led to some speaking and you know, doing all sorts of things like that. So in, in the end, though, my business is still a CRM company. We still have a bunch of goldmine clients who are happily using it and other CRM applications that we sell uh, for both small, medium, and large-sized companies. Yeah, and I think and, you've worked with Microsoft CRM, and you've worked with uh, Zoho. Correct, that- Zoho, HubSpot, and Salesforce. So, you so know, all of those um, we offer and do, it just depends, depends on the company. Because when when you and I started, uh, well, you were you were into it a little bit before me. I was a goldmine user. 
In fact, we right. were the only group within Symantec that wasn't using ACT. We were using Goldmine because it had forecasting and multi-team and some other elements. But I eventually joined the company. But back then, there were only three or four that were dabbling. You had Siebel at the high end, and you had a few. Uh, there, there really weren't a lot of mid-level players. There was Goldmine, ACT, Maximizer. And, and now there are over right. 350 companies that claim to be in the CRM space, some of them doing very specialized things like big data or e-commerce. But they're claiming that it's part of CRM email, you know. Um, so what what I thought might be interesting is given your CRM breadth of experience, um, this, this is not a commercial for Goldmine. But uh, I, I thought, you know, we, we all spend a lot of time trying to convince people to start CRM. But I thought you've seen over the 20 years clients that have implemented it. We know Goldmine customers, for example, that once you get it started, you run it for seven, eight years. That's not uncommon to hear and longer. Sure. But I, I was just sort of wondering how successful has CRM been overall? At, and then what, what do you think is the next thing people should be doing? Or I, I sort of wanted to get into some trends and say, hey, we, often we do one thing and then we sort of get stuck and they don't move to the second. And I wondered if there's any you know, uh, takeaways from that that said, yeah, most people do really well at getting this far, but here's where they start to lag. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good question. I know you're you're going to share a lot of the things that that I'm, I'm about to say, and by all means, jump in. But you know, for starters, we have some clients that have just been fantastic successes with CRM. Have used it really, really well, and I'll get to the details of what I mean by that in a minute. But just really great stuff. And then we've had a lot of clients that have just failed miserably with it. Projects that ended in tears and yelling and profanity, and we've learned a lot. From, from all of that. And um, I can tell you, when I, when I gauge the success of a company um, using the CRM application, it, it always comes down, Paul, as you know, to like the culture and the company, right? I mean, it's the people that adopt it as their, as their thing, as their DNA, um, are the ones I know that succeed with it the most. I mean, they, they not only invest in the software, but they, they realize that the software doesn't run by itself, so they invest in the people, and, and make sure they have good administrative support internally and good outsiders that are helping them with consulting and um, making sure that they're getting out of it um, what they want to get out of it. Um, and, and, and my best clients, Paul, and I don't know if you see the same thing, but they use maybe 30% of their CRM application. I mean, some of these applications come with so much stuff. Um, and people right. kind of get all crazy with the customizations and integrating it, and they wanted to. And it's like, you know what? If you know, it's the it's the people that I know that buy it for a specific purpose, a specific return on investment. It's no different than any asset that they purchase. Um, they learn, you know, th those are the ones that use it the best. And I've also noticed something else, and I don't know if you if you've seen this as well, Paul, but um, over the past few years, you know, as my clients have gotten older and have looked to exit, um, sell their businesses. The ones that have good CRM systems, you know, good, clean, tight databases are actually able to get a higher selling price for their businesses because of the CRM data that comes along with it. Because, you know, we live in a big data world. Well, you're buying, a, you're buying a customer base, and it's better than yeah. uh, knowing that it's on a computer is much better than a filing cabinet. And I, I think uh, Paul wants to pay the bills. So we're going to do that now, and then we'll come back and let's drill into a little bit more detail when we're speaking with Gene Marks, CRM expert, small business expert, and longtime business advisor. Thanks, Paul.
We know you rely on your CRM system, and it's usually a love-hate relationship. Most CRM systems, well, let's face it, they're expensive. They're hard to understand. People don't use them properly. And you're probably paying for features that you don't even want. If that's your case, then maybe it's time to simplify. It's time to get more from your CRM. Why don't you go back to the original? Trust Goldmine. We help pioneer the industry, after all. Goldmine CRM is, well, it's simple, it's affordable, and it's proven. If all those sound appealing to you, if you're just tired of the CRM headaches that you're getting from trying to implement something that's just too complicated, too expensive, and too much for you to figure out, then why not go back to the original? Visit Goldmine today, goldmine.com. All right, back to um, Paul and his fellow uh, Beatles fan. The, the fifth Beatle. The fifth Beatle. I like yeah, that. The there. fifth Beatle. Uh, so we're ta- speaking with Gene Marks of the Marks Group. And, you know, Gene, one of the things I've seen is that companies that have implemented Goldmine and other CRMs sort of buy into the, okay, this is our filing cabinet of customers and prospects, uh, you know, the, the, the record for that. And what would you say is the number one business function, though, that people are using CRM for other than sharing, you know, phone, num- you know, the, the phone numbers and aspects? Uh, it was interesting. Many people would say, oh, they're using a few years ago. People would say, I'm only using five percent of the product. And you, you just said that they're using 30 percent. So that's an increase. So we're going to take that as yeah, a, a rule of thumb. Point. But where did where did they start you know, building out the most uh, from your experience where it's had the I'll most impact you. on the I'll business? You know, one of the secrets that I found with these CRM systems is because they're databases, um, the, the, the people that I've learned from the most um, are using these systems uh, for, for reporting purposes. So you ask, what is the main business function that people get out of it? I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, about three or four times a year, I get a call from a sales manager or a VP of sales or somebody that's in that line, and they'll be like, hey, Gene, uh, you know, I've been using this CRM system. Maybe it's Goldmine, and I'm leaving the company. I'm starting up at another company. i got five or ten people that are reporting to me. I need you to come on in. I need you to set up the same CRM system that I had before because that's what I know, and I need these three reports coming at it because that's how I manage my group. And I get these calls some, you know, a few times a year because these are people that know exactly what they want from this tool. And the number one report that they all seem to want is the, the opportunity report. And the opportunity report is nothing more than a pipeline because any salesperson or any sales manager that's trying to just track what's going on in their sales pipeline, a lot of them are doing it using spreadsheets. And when they put in a CRM system, the smart ones realize that they can replace the spreadsheets with what's in the system and also provide a lot more data than they were getting out of a spreadsheet. So when they, when they come to me and they say, we're going we're gonna to do this, we want to replace our spreadsheets, or we want to make sure that we have these same kind of pipeline reports going on, what they realize is that they're using the system with a, a specific return on investment. So like by having this opportunity report, this pipeline report coming out, it's giving me all the information I need about not only deals coming up, but also who last spoke to this person, uh, what's our next action, who's responsible, what's the value of the deal. The pipeline report, it, to me, has been the biggest return on investment, the biggest business use of a CRM system right out of the box. A lot of times, people trying to make these systems into what they're not. They, they are really at the core 
a tracking system of activities and opportunities and deals. That's like the first thing that you want to get your arms around before you expand the use to other functionality. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I think we've observed it. And, and I think one other little tweak, I mean, in the old, quote unquote, the old days or years uh, past, the sales managers were the leading person to make contact and say, hey, I need something. And 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 there was also a little bit of a policing aspect when CRM first started out. Oh, I need to how many hmm. calls people are making. Fortunately, I've seen that drop, right? And they're now focusing on, Good. as you say, the opportunity. It's the lifeblood of the company, whether you're small or large. You know, the larger, the harder it is to compile spreadsheets. But even a medium-sized business should be keeping track of what's in the top of the funnel, what's in the middle of the funnel. And I have always sort of said, use that as an agenda, the sales agenda for coaching, right? To to each individual yep. rep. Here's how you need to you need to work more on getting some new new deals in the pipeline while you close these or hey what do you need to close these final ones uh, you know you know down so that's been good the i don't know if you've seen this but from our perspective we have seen marketing people show up at the meeting a little bit more what, what have you experienced that in your uh, across yeah, your, you know, your product line it's funny it, you know the marketing people the issue that I find with marketing people when they look at CRM systems is that they all want them, and they all want them because they want the data that's in the CRM system. Because obviously, if the data is really good, they can slice and dice it and use it, um, you know, for their campaigns and, and other things they want to do. In reality, you know what I find, and this is particularly at smaller or medium-sized companies, the marketing people are relying on data that the salespeople are producing. And unfortunately, the marketing people don't always supervise or have authority over the salespeople. So whenever I see like a marketing person that's trying to drive the implementation of a CRM system or comes up with the idea of it, I'm always a little bit wary about it because I'm thinking to myself, how's this person going to get this 10-person sales team to do what he or she wants them to do when they're reporting to somebody else. So Close the, the marketing people want it, right? They, you know, they show up to these meetings, but I just sometimes I just feel like they just they, they don't have the ability to get what they want out of the system because they're they're not working close enough or have the authority over the people that are actually doing the data entry. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And uh, I was going to ask, have you seen any? Uh, I'll call it examples of or bad behavior or you know things that you would like people to avoid if they're if let's say you have CRM what what are some things that you like so like you mentioned okay marketing doesn't have control over the sales data so they're, they're they they really shouldn't implement it but uh, that they have a role they have a seat at the table but are there any other yeah. things that you've seen that have gone horribly awry I I'll tell you my biggest pet peeve and this is after 20 years is I hate freaking weak people, particularly weak managers. Um, when people, uh, here's, uh, for example, um, a few years ago, we implemented a CRM system at a client of ours. They were near Harrisburg. They had about 60 users of the system. They were doing everything. On, I mean, it's a bigger company. They were doing everything on spreadsheets. Their big thing was call reports. They had salespeople all over the world, and they were sending in their activity reports for the week on Word documents and manual you know, lists and 
toilet paper and whatever. And the VP of sales said, listen, we need to get a CRM system so everybody can put the information all into one place and then we can just you know, push a button and generate those call reports ourselves here and save a lot of time and be more productive. Okay. So these guys spent about six figures on their CRM system. They flew all the salespeople in from all over the world. We set it up. We did all the training. Everybody's happy. We're high-fiving, hugging and kissing each other. This is great. And then all the salespeople went back to where they were. And Paul, like many of them just kept doing what they were doing before. You know, they were like, oh, you know, this system, the screen is blue and I thought it would be green or it was, this was taking me a little bit too much time. I I like doing it my way, the old way. And the, the VP of sales just caved. You know, he's like, oh, okay, you know, my guy in England isn't happy with it, so I'll just let him keep going on sending in the reports the way he was. And my other guy in Brazil has got a problem with the way it looks, so I'm going to let him. And basically the whole system fell apart. I mean, they, you know, they never got – and I, I come across this stuff all the time, and I'm sure you do as well, where you've got – Well, we see you – know, know, that, that scares me as a provider. It's when I say, oh, we're going to have the end users evaluate, and I go, oh, boy. Uh, oh, while it has to be yeah. built for end users to be efficient and give them some benefit, they get into, well, it doesn't look like what I'm – they're not skilled at, at picking a system that supports workflow. I had one, one follow-up question here that uh, – so of all the range of products, and you're, you're familiar with all, and we don't try to be everything, right. but is there, a, is, is there a place for – I'll call it simple CRM, or at what, at what point should you start worrying about integration with, say, something like – QuickBooks. So you're very familiar with accounting systems. Uh, yeah. It had sponsored a QuickBooks integration at some point. There's there's other integrations. But at what point should the company move beyond the CRM sort of out of the box and integrate with something else? Where What, what are your recommendations there? Uh, and observations? First, of, first of all, I'll tell you this much. Uh, you know, 80% of the companies that I come across can't even maintain a shared calendar without there being fistfights around it or data that's not being lost or stuff that's not being put in in the right way. So, you know, you got to graduate high school before you go on to college. Some people talk about integrating. Yeah, we want to get the CRM system and integrate it with QuickBooks and integrate it with our website and customize to do this and that. And meanwhile, I'm like, yeah, but your salespeople aren't even putting in simple follow-ups or or, or, or using it properly with their email system. How can you even yes. do all of this stuff, right? right? So, so we – simple CRM, one last, everybody one last, needs – Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, one last story at a meeting we had where they were going to build this complex system. It was to um, get quotes done. And I said, why do you need these quotes so quickly? Well, it's discount approvals. And I looked at the owner and I said, you're about to spend $100,000 to give away money faster. Right. And he looked, and he looked at me and he went, why would Great we do point. that? And <laughs> I, I didn't win the sale, obviously, but uh, we <laughs> saved him $100,000. Uh, someday I hope yeah, he'll call well- me. Sometimes it helps to be honest, Paul, and that's that's why you're good at what you do is because you're giving people real-world advice. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when they're looking to implement a CRM system, should stop with the 30- or 60-day implementation and turn that into a 12- to 24-month implementation. Rome was not built in a day, and if you're committed to this system, you're going to have it for a number of years. So have a good quarterly plan of specific objectives that you want to accomplish each quarter and sort keep it continual improvement keep it something that you incremental can, you can accomplish right all right well we're, gene we're that that went by really fast and at some point i'm going to invite you back and uh, but i would like to say uh, you have a wealth of opportunity what's the best place for somebody to start to tap into your content 
Oh, I th- the best place to go is follow me on Twitter, I would say. It's um, at Gene Marks, G-E-N-E-M-A-R-K-S. And uh, all the stuff I'm writing is on there, as well as lots of CRM stuff as well. All right. Well, Gene, uh, great to catch up. And at some point, we'll love to have you come back and talk a little bit about the trends in small business, for example, and follow up. So, Paul, with, uh, with that, we have eight inches of snow, but it is sunny. So I'm going to say surf's up. You've been listening to another episode of CRM Radio today. Right here in the Funnel Radio Network for at-work listeners like you. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies, the only global sales training company integrating leading sales methodologies and the latest neuroscience studies into a simple and repeatable 10-step process for your sales success and everyone who tries it. With our host, John Asher himself, the founder and CEO of Asher Strategies, and Kyla O'Connell, senior partner and master sales facilitator at Asher Strategy. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Paul. Good afternoon, all. Welcome to the initial uh, version of our Asher radio show, Asher Sales Sent. Paul will be our announcer for the show. Our guest today is my co-host, Kyle O'Connell, and the subject of her chat is going to be how to boost your sales career by adopting the mindset of an elite salesperson. During the program, we'll discuss what Kyle has learned training and coaching people globally. Kyle is the Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Asher and our senior sales trainer and coach. She's also an outstanding speaker at Visage Worldwide and an image consultant with the Professional Women's Network. Welcome, Kyla. Thank you, John. It's great great to be on this today. Kyla, let's just start off with the basics. How did you get into the business of sales? What was your first experience in this? Well, I actually studied public relations and advertising in college and was offered a couple of positions in PR firms around the Baltimore area and just didn't really think that I could make the money doing that kind of work right out of college. So I started looking at uh, interviewing different recruiters and they gave me uh, a personality assessment. And the recruiter asked me if I had ever considered a career in professional sales, and I apparently have a high aptitude for it. And I, I said, no, I, I, I didn't. And it was the late 90s, and everybody was doing really well selling hardware and software and services, IT services. And so I gave it a shot. And the real drive, though, was I wanted to simply make more money. And I thought, if I have a natural aptitude for it, why not give it a shot? So that's how I got started. Well, that sounds like a, a reasonable way to go, and especially back then when, as you said, with all the hardware sales going on and selling to uh, technical guys, CIOs, and that sort of thing. Were there any uh, areas where you where you initially struggle with sales? Oh, of course. I mean, everybody does initially until they learn how to channel their natural strengths that and, and leverage those strengths, and then also pair it with best practice selling skills, the natural aptitude or having that natural 
talent for any kind of position gets you a long way. Some of my natural strengths where I just really love talking to people. <laughs> so in sales, that goes a long way. And I, I like them to want to talk to me and, and like me and, and have a good impression uh, with me. So I worked really hard for that initially and still do, but that all of that came natural to me. And then once I started learning the techniques and the, the actual selling skills, well, then that was where my, any of my struggles really started to uh, go away so, because I could marry the natural talent with the selling skills. So it sounds like um, if you're if you're kind of a naturally a big talker type, and you were selling <laughs> to IT guys, was that cause any struggles? Oh, that that was certainly my first struggle. No, it was it was a little bit challenging for sure. I didn't realize the foundations of personality types and uh, that there are four different types. Of course, we all intuitively know that there are quieter people and talkative people, but uh, I didn't know that my personality could really turn off somebody who is uh, more reserved, more quiet, more patient, more cautious. And that was what I started to notice when I was selling into the uh, IT services industry, um, that I was selling to a lot of reflective thinkers. I know that term now. I didn't know it back then. I'm an expressive communicator. And those are you know, polar opposites to one another. So I realized <laughs> later <laughs> at your training, John, I realized later why that, that was a struggle for me. So I ended up leaving IT because of it. I just found that it was a bit of a struggle to uh, build relationships with people who have different personalities. And I didn't have the skills yet that I have today to make that transition. So I went into hospitality and worked in the golf industry for about three to five years. It was golf for three years, and then we morphed into uh, private clubs, resorts, that kind of thing. And that's where I started hitting my stride in sales. I really started to see different personalities in my clients. I was able to uh, really get my arms around the product and the services we provided, which was key, and uh, was able to hit significant milestones very quickly there. So that was that was a lot of fun. Actually, at the end of that, where we first met, wasn't it? It, it was. <laughs> it was. So <laughs> did did golf for a while, sold out uh, a struggling private club in the D.C. area. We sold it out in uh, six months. And it was the first time that that private club actually hired a salesperson. Usually they were just using people that kind of grew up around the club, whether it was, you know, banquet staff or golf staff to, to sell these items. And the general manager took a different approach and said, I, I can teach golf and, you know, events to a salesperson, but I can't, I'm not having a lot of luck teaching sales to these people. So I, I came in there with a different approach and we were able to sell out the weddings and the the golf course memberships and the outings almost, I mean, it was just really a lot of fun. It actually got kind of funny because uh, we sold so many memberships that the members were telling me to stop selling. <laughs> <laughs> golf course is getting too crowded, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So after that uh, golf experience, I really wanted to get the big corporate experience. So I, I went into um, hospitality working for Club Corp and Club Corp is a very large 
hospitality organization. They own private clubs and resorts and golf courses. And um, I decided to take a different route and work out of a business club in D.C. because I knew I must have had strong intuition here, but I knew if I took that position managing a membership of prominent D.C., Washington, D.C. professionals, that I would probably meet somebody that could help me in my career. And that's exactly what happened. So <laughs> that's <laughs> where that's I met right. you. So when you um, when you really think about where you've come from now and now as an elite salesperson, is it easy to get there? I mean, can anybody can anybody do it? Well, first, you have to have that natural talent. You have to naturally enjoy the things that are so imperative to be successful in sales. For example, you have to enjoy speaking with people. You have to enjoy the competitive drive that it takes to be successful. But the mindset is so important. I mean, some people have a lot of drive and they have a lot of, uh, you know, talent for sales, but their mindset's a little screwed up. <laughs> and mm-hmm. what I mean really by having that mindset, a positive mindset around the whole paradigm of the client and salesperson relationship, that it's a journey to find the win-win together. And if you do, and you work hard for that, you know, journey throughout that journey and you you work hard and, and, and they respect you for it. And if, and if it's there, great. It's a, a sale is, you know, happening, a solution is made in a relationship form. If you don't though, that's okay too. And the, the never appear desperate. And I think that's um, one of the rookie mistakes a lot of young salespeople make is they want to be successful. They have that competitive drive, but it can come across as aggressive or desperate. And that's the biggest mindset shift that elite salespeople have. They never come across desperate because they never are afraid and to go back to the basics. And they probably never really stop the basics, but they just know that put their whole heart into uh, the beginning of a relationship. And if it works, great. Everybody's happy. If it doesn't, it's not the right fit. They don't panic. They just move on and go back to the building the pipeline, prospecting, always, you know, asking for referrals, all of the basics. And elite salespeople who never stop doing that, they automatically just never come across desperate. And that's that's something that I see in so many salespeople, and I try really hard to help them with that mindset. Right along with that, what I've found is uh, how important product knowledge is. Um, if yes. you if you can't come across to the customer as a real resource from a product product knowledge standpoint, then it's pretty pretty tough. And you know, a lot of the latest studies show that, especially in technical industries, and the world's going more technical, that buyers would much rather deal with a subject matter expert with deep deep technical knowledge than a salesperson with average technical knowledge uh, who they know is just trying to sell them something. Yeah, I mean, is that is that what you found also? Absolutely, because when it's that high level of product knowledge, the respect factor is there. So it's, again, it's a journey together to see if the solution's the right one for them. It's a peer-to-peer kind of relationship versus, you know, feeling like they owe you something or that they're doing you a favor or anything like that. So that's a perfect example of, of a way to to get to that mindset and to portray that confidence with the customer. Absolutely. John and Kyla, it's Dave, and it's time to take a quick commercial break. 
just long enough to tell you that, well, something you may or may not know, over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success, really. Asher's Advanced Personality Questionnaire, the APQ as they call it, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, 17 other business positions. They really can tell. They've got a way to do it and a formula to follow. If you want to learn more, go to asherstrategies.com today to learn more. Or give them a call at 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866-833-9941. All right, that being said, let's pick it back up and get the second half of our interview today. Thank you. We're on the Asher Radio's uh, Sense and Sales Sense, and we're talking to Kyle O'Connell, VP of Sales and Marketing in uh, Asher. So, Kyle, uh, thanks for sharing all that information about your career and what's important. Could you kind of summarize what, when you when you watch the lead salespeople, are there a handful of factors that are usually in alignment? Certainly. This is what I love to teach people in our training courses and, of course, one-on-one coaching courses and just getting them to work the five factors for sales success. The elite salespeople have all five factors working uh, on all cylinders. And those factors, first of all, of course, you've already mentioned it, John, is product knowledge. So the elite salespeople, they burn the midnight oil. They know every question that could come up about their product or service. Uh, They know the competitive landscape that they're selling in. So they really can be, like you mentioned, that subject matter expert. Um, The second factor is this natural talent or natural aptitude for sales I've mentioned already today. And that's just given to us. We're either born with it or we're not. (laughs) Uh, So the true elite salespeople have that natural aptitude for sales. The third factor is the selling skills. So you can, like I mentioned already, you can have someone who has a natural drive and um, interest to be successful and talk to people and interactive, but if they talk over the customer, then you know that's not going to produce uh, great results. So they have to be taught the best practice selling skills of how to ask questions and listen and the closing principles and the whole aspect of the selling skills from prospecting all the way to building long-lasting relationships. The fourth factor is motivation, and that can be a little tricky. As a sales trainer and coach, sometimes if I see a person who has high levels of product knowledge and a high aptitude for sales, and I know that they've had the training of the skills and they're struggling, I have to now dig a little deeper to find out if there's a motivation issue. And sometimes that motivation issues can be internally, you know, maybe there's a personal situation going on, or it could be external. It could be something that's going on at the organization that uh, maybe they're not real comfortable with, a new owner, you know, a different type of role. And so it's our job to really dig deep and try to find out what's affecting their motivation. And then, of course, the last factor uh, are the processes, you know, not just the sales process, but also anything that really affects business growth, like a strong brand, strong marketing channel, of course, the sales process. And then once the sales come in, making sure that we have strong account management processes that we can handle the things that are coming in so we don't fail by too much success. 
all those five factors working together is uh, when we see that, we know we have an elite salesperson. And you know, I'll go into an organization oftentimes, and I'm like, well, I need to know who your five-factor people are. There's usually, you know, about 20% of their team is usually at that level, and and we try to get the others there or hire new ones to get there. Good, good, great description. So, just to let the audience know, Kyle has now gone from being an elite salesperson to being uh, one of the country's uh, really best uh, sales trainers with a terrific reputation. Is sales training easy? Can can anybody do it, or do you have any of the like keys to success for being a great trainer? Um, well, I think it's like anything else. It does require to have you know a natural aptitude for it, and it requires a ton of studying and a ton of practice. It's it's interesting because I remember when I went to the first training at Asher, and I sat in that training, and I said it was about. 12 years ago at this point. And throughout the day, I said, I, I'm going to do this someday. And I just knew it. And it's such a gift when uh, you get that calling. Um, because when you know, and you see something that you know, and you wish you could do uh, right away, it's something that it's, you, you can't think about anything else. You can't think about doing anything else. And I remember I spoke to you, you probably don't remember this, John, but I spoke to you after that day and I said, I really want to do this someday. And you chuckled at me and said, uh, okay, are you ready to read about 150 books on sales? <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed it off that day, but you weren't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so it took a lot of studying and, and then a lot of practice. And, and it was a little rough in the beginning, but I was determined to get the training that I needed to handle the room and uh, different personalities that come at you and different challenges and questions and energy. You have to bring energy. You have to be entertaining and you have to actually teach them something. So there's all kinds of training techniques involved as well. So it was a journey. And from that day until I became a trainer on my own was, was almost five years. So it really did take a long time it comes natural to me, but it still took a lot of work, a lot of work and a lot of practice. Well, from my observations of your, of your journey in the sales training, you know, you, you do those handful of things that all great trainers do. Number one, you, you have to explain to students new, new information, like all of our neuroscience stuff, or you've got to show a, a skill they've already heard about, like listening, but new ways to be the perfect uh, listener. Two, you've got to give personal stories that illustrate it, and it can't be stories about somebody else, not your own stories. Three, you've got to make it interactive um, with role-playing. Four, as you mentioned, you've got to be an entertainer. And then five, you've got to give them action items to take away and, and uh, work on. To be really brilliant like you are at all five of those levels doesn't just come overnight. No, no, no. And it's ongoing. You know, we, as trainers, we're always listening to these types of, podcasts and learning new information, reading, researching. We're talking uh, to each other about different techniques that have worked for us. And uh, it's, it's never ending. It's always, always learning. So Kyla, for you, what's uh, as a sales trainer and with your terrific uh, uh, global reputation, what's the most rewarding for you about, about sales training? I think the most rewarding 
part of being a sales trainer and coach is watching a salesperson whom I've trained and coached really take off. And I've had the wonderful opportunity to see that time and time again. And it's truly been just a joy to be a part of their process. I still get emails and LinkedIn messages and uh, phone calls from people that I've trained and coached over the last six, seven years, and they're just thriving and nothing makes me happier than watching that success in others. No, you're, you're, uh, you're changing people lives for the better. So anytime yeah. you can have a, a big impact on another person and their success in life, it's just, uh, it's what gets my heart uh, thumping faster. <laughs> and I know it's yeah. for you, for you too. Well, it's, it's, it's the ultimate, right? If you can, in, uh, it's not about yourself, about others. And of course, you know, I'm enjoying the process of growing myself as well. But, you know, that's what I love most about it. Great. So any uh, parting thoughts or advice for the audience? One of the biggest core things that you can do is just recognize your natural strengths and leverage them. You know, in the beginning for me, it was I just love talking to people and pleasing people and and leverage those natural strengths. Um, Manage your weaknesses through coaching. Don't be afraid to be self-reflective and get help and advice from people who may have strengths in areas where you're weak. Burn the midnight oil so your customers come to you for advice. Uh, They look to you for that trusted advisor and then practice and practice and practice again and never get too far away or think you're too good for the basics in sales because, you know, if you keep that going at a full momentum, you'll never have to chase any sales or ever feel desperate for anything to have to happen. And and that changes the game for everybody. John and Kyla, that's all the time we have for today. And for those of you listening Kyla can be reached at AsherStrategies.com. Over to you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you've been listening to Asher Strategies right here on the Funnel Radio Network for at work listeners like you. Welcome back to another episode of WVU Marketing Communications Today, live from West Virginia University. It's a syndicated show that sits squarely at the intersection of data-driven decision-making and marketing practice. It's a bi-weekly program that will highlight emerging and current trends impacting marketers today. And today we're brought to you by, or hosted by, one of the revolving crew there at WVU, Cindy Greenglass. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Paul. I never know what to call you guys. I, I, I like that revolving crew or a revolving... Uh, you're not guest host. You're each host, but uh, we have a whole bevy of you to draw upon here. Yes, at least we're not a revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's always the same. But, uh, well, you've got a, a fascinating faculty and, and always fascinating topics. Who would you bring along today? 
Well, today we are uh, delighted to have a fellow um, WVU alumni and faculty member, Larry Stoltz. Larry um, has been an IMC faculty member since 2007, and uh, he served as department chair for the Bachelor of Arts in Advertising program at the Art Institute of Atlanta where he taught courses in conceptual thinking and campaign development for more than 20 years. Prior to entering the teaching phase of his life, he operated design and advertising firms in New Orleans and Atlanta with clients in hospitality, tourism, real estate, corporate communications, healthcare, and social services. Um, Larry holds a Bachelor of Arts and Master's of Arts degrees in visual design from Purdue. He earned his PhD in educational policy, social foundations from Georgia State University in 2006. And he's a winner of the 2010 Golden Quill Teaching Award. So welcome, Larry. Well, thank you. It sounds like I have been busy in my lifetime, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You have been busy, and it is a great pleasure whenever I get to see you when the faculty gets together at uh, West Virginia University, and um, it is always a pleasure to spend time hearing from you and and learning from you. So we look forward to a great half an hour together. You can share with our audience some of your insights. Um, I want to kick us off a bit here. The topic is... um, ideation techniques, concept development, and IMC. And, you know, um, when I think of creative thinking and I think of uh, being creative, you know, I never thought of myself as a creative person. I'm a data gal. And, gee, data people aren't very creative, are they? And creative people, you always think, are the ones that have the great ideas. And, um, you know, that bias, we have the left brain, right brain. But um, you've studied and taught creative thinking for uh, many years. So um, I'd like to start, Larry, by um, asking you, you know, uh, how did that study come about? And, and, and what have you learned about creative thinking in these years? Well, I've learned quite a bit. I, when I ran my studio and my agency uh, many years ago, I was always searching for newer and bigger ideas. You know, I was always kind of panic-stricken. Uh, am I going to come up with a good idea today or tomorrow Do I re- and when I really need it? So I subscribed to Communication Arts Magazine, Print Magazine, and they all ended up with lots of dog-eared pages and lots of post-its sticking out the side. And every, every one of those was a, man, I wish I had thought of that kind of idea, you know? You had that. So anyway, I discovered creative thinking books, and I found several by, like, Doug Hall, Michael Michalko, Roger Von Eck, and Edward de Bono, and they all pointed to process. They all talked about ways of thinking that you could you could discover new ideas, interesting and fun ways to think and gave you little experiences and experiments you could do. And uh, that grew into something that I actually built a college course around on creative thinking and advertising. And some of those ways of of thinking to to get my students to generate ideas, and they did. They generated things that surprised them and me. And it was just a fascinating study, and I decided to make pretty much a career out of creative thinking and helping people develop concepts. Wow. So um, in the end, uh, creative thinking is also a process. I mean, it, you, you don't think of it that way. I just thought people are either very creative and, and ideate really easily or they're not. So there is a process behind that after all. Um, tell me about um, 
brainstorming and 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 mind mapping and 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 you know what are some of the dependable creative thinking triggers and inspiration techniques that you've um, discovered and developed? Okay, I've uh, I've had several students obviously uh, that come into the course saying, you know, Professor Stoltz, I am not creative. I don't know how I'm going to do in this class. And I just tell them that I can help. We can work out. We can work on creativity and breaking through the clutter and all the, the things that people worried about, about. And I've had several students at the end of the course just be totally proud of themselves and have a campaign that they can show in their portfolio that is creative. But what I tell them is that it's a scary thing to find that that you have to come up with that one big idea, the one concept for your client or for for your for your class. Um, I have discovered different creative thinking inspirations and triggers, and you mentioned brainstorming. That's one that many, many people have gotten involved with. I think brainstorming is groupthink. It's group talk. It can get noisy. It can get fun. It can get loud. It can it can get a little bit crazy, um, but brainstorming is one that we've all enjoyed. I like one called mind mapping, because mind mapping is an individual kinds of, kind of experience uh, the stems from brainstorming, but you do it by yourself, and you describe. Uh, I like I like to have people just take pages and pages of paper and put their ideas as as many as they can get down and give themselves twenty minutes, two hundred, three hundred ideas, write them down, and then you go back and you study those and and circles and arrows and draw connections and pretty soon, uh, that's essentially what creative thinking is all about is put, drawing connections. And so that's one that I like to, uh, I enjoy leading people to do. There's another one that I like called Random Stimulus Response that uh, I took from a couple of the books that I read, where you take random objects, random words, and draw connections. And that, and then you start applying those connections. Well, how does that apply to the, the problem that I'm trying to solve? How am I going to come up with this ad for toothpaste based on uh, an acorn and and a bulldozer, you know, those kind of things. But it happens. It's great fun drawing those connections. Uh, I then discovered that images can do the same thing. And I developed a list, of, uh, a deck of cards called uh, Tail Feathers that I took a lot of pictures in nature. And then on the front of the card, I have the picture from nature, a nature, nature object. And on the back, I have little triggers, little things that, that make you think about what about that, that tree or that toad or whatever and uh it then you start drawing connections and, and th those inspire ideas too um let's see i've got a couple of others that i wanted to tell you about one of them is assumption smashing uh you take everything you know about a, a sub a product or a, a um an item and figure out what your assumptions are and then smash those say no what if there's another idea you know cars originally did not have that uh rear mirrors uh, let alone backup cameras, and so cars didn't have those, and somebody had to break the assumption that cars don't—you don't have to look backwards. Cereal in the original uh, kinds of cereal did not have fruit, so somebody said, "Well, what can we do about cereal? Make it more fun." So um, that's called what ifing and assumption smashing. All great innovations come from have come from that. Another is one of my favorites and most fun is don't sell me something, promise me something. If you're trying to market cosmetics, you're not selling cosmetics, are you? No. You're selling beauty. You're selling pride. You're selling how you look uh, in, in public. So that's what, you're, that's what people are buying. They're not buying the cosmetic. 
Another one that I think is kind of funny is how about a drill, a regular electric drill? You're not buying a drill. You're buying holes. You're buying smooth, sanded, polished surfaces. And so the, the approach is to show people the benefit of what you're trying to get them to subscribe to or buy or believe. Huh. Well, Larry, this is fascinating. You, so it sounds like you do a lot of these exercises with your um, classes and your students. Um, can you direct our listeners to um, places where maybe they could um, get access to some of this great um, information, either books that you recommend or, you know, do you make your cards available that people can use in their own um, state of thinking? Where could we send some folks? Well, there's uh, uh, several books. I, I like to recommend the books because they're illustrated and they're fun to look at. There's um, Roger Von Eck, o V O N O E C H, uh, wrote a book called A Whack on the Side of the Head, and he's got a lot of this stuff in it. So he also published a whack deck. You can buy a deck of little flashcards. Um, a man named Doug Hall wrote a book called Jumpstart Your Brain, and it's largely aimed at business businessmen and helping them break their what they feel is a lack of creativity and it really works uh, Michael Natalko uh, did a book called Thinker Toys and the second book called uh, Creative I'm trying to look at my bookshelf uh, but anyway if you look at Michael Natalko's Thinker Toys it'll promote his other books so and then each of them have a, a website and you can go to look at their website um, so that's, well, that's know- at least three Great. Yeah. We have um, your uh, contact information um, on our website here after the podcast. And um, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, uh, do we have permission to have them contact you directly and you could guide them appropriately after our show? Yeah, that'd be great. I've got a website, too. It's ideatailwind.com. Right. You can go on there uh, and just learn a little bit about the, my, my company, and then it's got my contact number and my email address on there, too. Great. Well, um, it's interesting to hear you talk about how we can create a process around creative thinking. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a, a situation where I thought, wow, I have to come up with something brilliant, and I've got five minutes. Um I remember when I was a student in the IMC program at West Virginia University in the capstone program and, you know, trying to figure out how to come up with the, quote, big idea. And um, I I had a a, a favorite expression that uh, I learned through that process from Albert Einstein, who said, creativity is just intelligence having fun. And, um, you know, we have to overcome our fear of uh, you don't just come up with creative ideas. You develop them intelligently. Yeah, um, that's for I sure. I want to just move fun. on to one other quick question before we'll go on a break in a few minutes, Larry. And and that okay. is, um, you know, you've talked about process. So um, you don't develop anything out of the blue. Uh, there seems to be a, a, a process that you're following. Um, talk a little bit more about how that process works that you've seen. Um, we may start that conversation now and then pick it up after the break. Yeah, we can do that. There's uh, There are a lot of people that have a process and they, they get real creative with how, what they call their process. Like they all the letters, all of it begins with I or B. Like identify, investigate, illuminate. I've seen that several times. But the one that I like a lot 
is one where I can personify myself into the phase of the process and actually believe I am that person. The first thing you are is a, it's a four-step process. First, you're an explorer, and you dig deep, and you do your research and all your homework, and you make lots of notes, and you explore every possible way of solving the problem that other people have done and write down what you might do. So that's your explorer part. <clears throat> then you move on, and you be an, what I call the artist. That's when you do your sketches, write down um, little phrases, draw circles and arrows on those too. <clears throat> and so you become an artist about getting your ideas on paper. And when you feel like you've exhausted that, then you go on and you become a judge. You judge yourself. You judge your own work. And that's really, those two people don't get along well. The artist and the judge don't get along well. So they have to go back and forth and back and forth. You're going to be an artist and then a judge and an artist and then a judge until you know you're right, until you know you have a golden idea, the big idea, and then you become the warrior. And then the warrior goes, that's when you go to your client or your creative director or your team member and say, this is what I believe we should do and this is why. So that's the explorer, artist, judge, warrior process. And it just works. I've had people say, I didn't think there was a process, but now I see that there can be. Terrific. Let's um, think about that uh, four-step process while we take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Larry Stoltz about concepts that seem to be working and what he has seen over the years. So, Paul, we're going to send it back to you for a minute. <laughs> All right, and in that minute, we want to remind you that West Virginia University's online data marketing communications program is the first graduate program of its kind in the country. Focusing on strategic thinking, like we're talking about today, critical problem solving, and informed decision making, the data marketing communications program at West Virginia University prepares you for your career in marketing by learning those innovative techniques and tactics the award-winning faculty can teach you, like the, the guest today. It's easy to learn more. It isn't a four-step process. It's just a one-step process. You need to go to dmc.wvu. That's for Data Marketing Communications at West Virginia University. dmc.wvu.edu. All right, back to you. Thank you, Paul. You're getting better and better at this all the time. I am. You know, I'm talking this academic jargon easier and easier here because it's starting to make sense to me here. You're going to have a master's degree in a very short time <laughs> after all these podcasts with our wonderful guests, Paul. You know, can I ask you one quick question? Because you've had a lot of shows and you keep bringing lots of faculty. How many people, uh, what's the size of your faculty? What's the size of your program here? Uh, well, there are over 500 instructors wow. involved in the IMC and DMC wow. master's program, bringing um, a collection of very, very different skills, expertise, both um, academically and professionally, such as, you know, Larry and the um, creative thinking and uh, folks like myself on data and analytics. We have uh, web expertise and customer experience, healthcare marketing, cause marketing. Oh, there's so many different um, programs. And that these are people being- are all over the country, and they're doing it day to day. These aren't just theorists trying to tell you last year's uh, great big idea here. I mean, these are people on the front lines doing it today. 
That is correct. All of our faculty are folks like Larry and myself who are practitioners doing the work every day, who are also seasoned academics. So we are blending the two worlds together, the practical and the academic, to bring uh, uh, both perspectives to our students. Well, I want to hear a practical way to get more creative here. He's got four steps. I'm ready to write them down. All right. Well, Larry, we were just talking about explorer, artist, judge, warrior. Um, it sounds to me like the artist and the judge is a little conflicting there. Um, do, do you ever, I want to follow up on that question, on that discussion, um, do you ever find it might be easier to bounce an idea off of somebody else? Because, you know, it's hard to really judge your own ideas. Can you really be objective? Are there times when it's better to ask uh, somebody else for their opinion or no? Keep it to yourself until you're ready to go, you know, full force. Well, that depends on your personality, I think. I think it's really good to work in teams. Uh, teams, though, uh, each individual tends to get a little possessive of their ideas and then they tend to fight over them and duke it out, you know, who's, who's going to have... But, that's when you get into the group think and the brainstorming uh, philosophy. So I like to develop everything as fully as I can by myself and then take it to my team. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go straight to a client and risk the agency's reputation. I don't think that's a very smart idea at all. But, but uh, I like to go through the process on my own and uh, then share. That's my preference. I have, I have uh, students that really do not like teamwork, but we try to build it up in them, don't we? In this program, we have to. Yes. Yes, we do. Um, so I was Great. looking at, you were, you were talking about some of the things that have worked in the past. Um, there's a lot of campaigns that are out there right now that, that we love. Uh, going through the contemporary campaigns is, uh, everybody's going to have an opinion. We all like the mayhem, the insurance mayhem guy. We all like oh, yeah. Kit Kat. And how do you eat a Kit Kat? We all, I particularly like Twix Bar, where you, you either eat the left end of the bar or the right end of the bar. And there's a whole website about are you left or right with your Twix Bar. And there's just, it's a bunch of really wild stuff. But I wanted to maybe, if we have a, two minutes here, I'll tell you about what we call the unique selling propositions that you sure. use creative ideas on in advertising. Um, there are 16 unique selling propositions, and, and almost everything that we've ever seen in advertising comes from one or two or four or six of those combined. And the first one is unprecedented. You've all, we've all seen things that never existed before, advertised, electric cars, Apple Pay, wearable technology. Those are all things that are unprecedented, and that's one hook that we can use in marketing. There's new and improved. We've seen that forever. Toilet paper, toothpaste, laundry detergent, it, it's new and improved, and they, the package will tell you so. There's mode of action is a third one. The mode of action is how things work, like Pepto-Bismol. We all know how Pepto-Bismol works. There's site of action, where it works. One of my favorites is Doan's back pills. It's for back pain, right? Site of action, well, you take a Doan's back pill and you... The Don's back pill medicine goes by your shoulder that aches and says, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'm a back pill. i got to move on. Um, there's efficacy. That's how well something works. Uh, the myriad new medic medical ads we see on television are all based on efficacy, what, what they do. Comparison. The original was the Coke-Pepsi challenge, and right now we're seeing the Chevy pickup truck challenge. 
which is a, the Ford, the Dodge, the Chevy, which one's the best best truck? Then there's Problem Solution. Uh, uh, the Budweiser is a great one. They did water to disaster areas. So there was a problem of disaster areas needing water. Budweiser called their production line together and uh, can't put water in cans and send it. There's Price and Value, Costco, Aldi. Those are examples. Uh, Parity, Me Too, that's really hard when you're trying to advertise salt, sugar, uh, flour. How do you do that? Um, quality and service is the 10th one. That's car dealerships, Goodyear, Best Buy, and Geek Squad all want to promote their quality and service. Testimonial is one must use the product and then say how much they like it. Then related to that is third-party endorsement. Uh, they don't have to use the product. They just have they're paid. They're paid to say they like that product. Uh, borrowed interest is one that's uh, unrelated associations. Corona beer on the beach, that, that, those don't relate, but the advertising shows that they do. Uh, one of the little bit weird here is Cialis, and those people are in separate rowboats. How does that work? Um, slice of life is another of uh, the examples. Life situations like McDonald's and Cheerios, slice, slice of life we see all the time. Image and lifestyle. Um, Yeti, the Yeti coolers, and Subaru, those are dog levers. We all know that. And then, of course, the 16th selling proposition that works is sex. It always has sold, and it always will. The Clairol Herbal Essence proved that. So those are the 16 things that you can, that I recommend people base creative thinking on. Aha. Now that's a lot to choose. Um <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of things to choose there. from there. Holy cow. You know, a couple of them that come to um, to mind there that we've seen a lot of um, is, um, you know, when you said paid endorsement, I, I, I hope you don't mind. I can put you on the spot here. You know, um, there's there's been recently some conversation around, you know, um, paid endorsement with influencers. Um, do you consider that authentic? Is it authentic, the, 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 the movement towards micro-influencers, everyday people not paid? Um, just wondering if you have a point of view, Larry, on, on that in today's climate of um, paid endorsement. Do you think that's still going to be as effective? Well, it seems to be growing and growing. Uh, paid influ influencers, uh, paid endorsers. And there is a lot of debate about that. I would prefer personally to be talking to somebody that authentically does wear that shirt or read that book or whatever they're endorsing. Um, the testimonial thing I like. The paid endorser is, it can be debated whether that's good or not, but most of the advertisers that I know of are being very careful to have it be believable and be authentic and remove the endorsers from the, uh, in, from the program that are not being sincere. They have to do that. Wonderful. So unprecedented, that obviously is an easy one. Um, I think, unfortunately, most of us find ourselves living in the world of parody, um, you know, which you said that is a tough one, where, or we're competing on a Me Too basis, and you've given us a whole bunch of really good, um, unique selling propositions to think about that take us outside of uh, this arena. Um, 
Larry, I want to ask you, now I'm going to move on to the digital space a little bit. You know, we start talking about that a little bit with the micro um, influencers, but with all the varied media options we have, the outlets, the platforms, we got all different avenues of media uh, available to us now. How are we to create marketing campaigns, integrated marketing campaigns um, that have an impact on our audience? Uh, what comes first? Where do we start? What's what would you guide us on? Well, we've uh, talked about that in the, among the faculty, and it, uh, many years ago, over the years, a, a campaign would begin with a print ad, right? But no longer. It just doesn't work that way anymore. And the big brands are trying to figure out the digital space, and we're trying to keep up with the big brands, and they're trying to keep up with it, too. I love the fact that we are paying attention to the consumer. The consumer is the one that is really driving where we need to go we have to pay attention to what they're they're doing we have to go where they're living uh, we're moving quickly in the video direction um, we love storytelling we all love personalization we love conversation about brands and services and causes and so wherever people are living on, in the digital space for the products that we're promoting or the services or the causes we're promoting that's where we have to go we have to know where they live uh, the video is obviously going to be growing and growing. It's up to 80% of what we consume on in the Internet right now. Uh, the emerging techs like uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, we're all talking about that. But those are all just tools, right? It's the concept, it's the creative concept that makes people take notice. And that's why we begin with a course like mine or thinking like I recommend and show in order to know how we can apply our concept to the digital space in the right size, frame, whatever we have to do. We have to know all of that. I think that's great. You have to know where people are living and uh, where they are. And uh, Larry, I hate to, to have to say we've reached the end of our half an hour together, and there's so much we could have talked about further. Um, but we have to let our audience move on um, to get on with the rest of their day. I want to thank Larry Stoltz for a, a wonderful and thought-provoking time with us today on our podcast. And uh, we'll look forward to joining you again, Paul, uh, from WVU Today Radio. Thanks, Larry. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of WVU Radio Today, brought to you on the Funnel Radio Network for at-work listeners like you.